Welcome, everyone, to the Religion Unplugged podcast, your regular plug-in for all of your religion news and culture. I am Joseph Holmes, semi-regular host of the Religion Unplugged podcast and regular host of The Overthinkers, which you can check out at theoverthinkersjournal.com. My guest today, I'm very excited, is the author of The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes, as well as Love Thy Body, The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding truth and total truth she is professor and scholar in residence at houston christian university she has been quoted in the new yorker and newsweek highlighted as one of the five top women apologists by christian today and hailed in the economist as america's preeminent evangelical protestant female intellectual she is the noble the nifty the notorious professor nancy percy professor welcome to the show thanks so much for having me i appreciate it yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I was telling you beforehand, I, I was very excited uh, to read your book and to talk to you. I, you know, uh, was hearing about your book from other people and and followed you on social media and saw all the, you know, uh, arguments you're having back and forth with people and people reading your book and, and kind of talking about what's in the book. And, and I was like, well, OK, this is. Uh, she's she's making a lot of people on both sides of of the the political, religious, and philosophical aisle very mad, and that's usually a good sign that it's going to be interesting to read. So, um, uh, how has that? I guess first off, how has how, what have you been thinking about the response to your book? How has that struck you? Well, the response started before it was even published. Uh, it has proven to be the most controversial book I've ever written. And that did surprise me because um, my earlier book, Love Thy Body, covered issues like abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, which is really exploding now. So I was surprised that masculinity was actually more controversial. Yeah. When, when I was in the writing process, um, I taught several classes on the manuscript. I did a lot of reading groups on the manuscript. I like mm -hmm. to get a lot of feedback, yep. rub off the rough edges. Um, and when they would tell their family and friends uh, about the book, invariably, the first question was, whose side is she on? <laughs> yeah, with that tone, yeah, whose side is she on? By the way, the second question was always, and why is a woman writing a book on masculinity anyway? <laughs> um, and so that basically men tended to assume, since I was a female writer, I must be a male bashing feminist. More progressive people assumed I was some sort of angry, defensive, reactionary culture warrior. Um, and, and so I have to tell you, I rewrote chapter one multiple times hmm. uh, to kind of get over that initial hostility. Because when people got into it, as you as you probably noticed, yeah. it's a very fact based, data based yeah. book. And when they when people got into the actual facts, they said, oh, yeah, this is interesting. I didn't know this. But I had to get readers over that initial hump. and then. Uh, you've seen some of the response after it came out. It was the day after it was published uh, that a Twitter storm erupted. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, the Christian egalitarians jumped on it and said, uh, to be honest, most of them haven't read it yet. OK, so yeah. again, they were reacting to what they'd heard. And many of them. Here's the actual language. You're giving ammunition, their right. word, ammunition to complementarians which is dangerous and harmful and bad, yeah. uh, which was odd because I don't even engage the complementarian right. egalitarian debate. And I even explain why I don't, <laughs> which we could go into if you want. Um, but that lasted about, well, it lasted about three weeks. 
on my Twitter feed. Yes, I, well, I was watching some of that. That was yeah. Yeah, it was it was kind of fun. I mean, uh, until finally uh, the the magazine New Orthodoxy wrote an article on it defending me. Yeah. Um, and after that, the uh, the main person leading the attack. I mean, she's a public figure. I don't know if you want to name her or not. But anyway, she apologized. Okay. Well, that's apologized. great. Yeah. That's good. And, 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 then, and then the conservatives took up and they began <laughs> yes. to object to it as well. So you're right. It has it has won enemies on both sides. And, Which is uh, usually a sign that at the very least you're saying something interesting. You know, yeah, I think so. Which is which is what I like. Again, you know, the fact you're getting attacked from both sides doesn't mean you're right, but it does mean that you're thinking through the problem and not immediately jump falling into tribalism. And that's always a better place to be. So I want to get, dive into that. So, yes, the book we're talking about is, you know, the, um, the Toxic War and Masculinity book, which has just come out. Um, if you didn't, you know, gather that from our conversation so far. And it's diving right in, of course, to like one of the biggest conversations we're having right now, you know, which is about toxic masculinity, which is, you know, based on the fact that, you know, people are observing that, you know, the reality is that within society, you know, men are more likely to commit the majority of murders, you know, the mass shootings, the rape and sexual assault and marital abuse and the like. And so this idea of toxic masculinity that the reasons are either, you know, men are innately worse than women or that the way society socializes men uh, and men socialize each other is worse than the way society socializes women. Of course, this has been in, you know, the uh, been prominent in in the religious sphere, particularly the evangelical sphere with, you know, scandals like Ravi Zacharias and, you know, and books that have come out, you know, like Jesus and John Wayne, which, you know, is talking about how the evangelical church is at the forefront of the problem. Um, so you were already a celebrated author by this point, at least celebrated in certain circles, like the, the circles that I run in, you know, love thy body, you know, is 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 touted and and recommended a lot. Um, what about this conversation, you know, um, made you say that you wanted to write a book on it? You thought that there this would be a topic that you would have a, a, a particular voice to enter the conversation in. And for readers who haven't, you know, read your book or heard about your book, what would you say is sort of like the main thesis of the book that you came away with of something to say about it? Yeah, I would say that the final trigger in writing the book, I mean, clearly I was partly, my attention was drawn to the fact that it's become extremely uh, acceptable to express hostility against men. The Washington Post had an article titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? <laughs> really? You know, respected main, main mainstream publication, uh, Huffington Post editor tweeted hashtag kill all men. You can yeah. buy T-shirts that say so many men, so little ammunition <laughs> and, and and books that they come out with titles that say just bluntly, I hate men or no good men or are men necessary. And there, there have even been males coming out as well. Um, a fairly well-known male author wrote a book in which he said, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. <laughs> and then this one, you might know, you might have seen this because it was more recent. Um, 
the director. Well, I remember of all of these things that you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow, you've just stayed on top of them. Well, here's the one. It's not. This is the only one not in the book because uh, it was more recent. But the director of the mo- movie Avatar. Oh yeah, James yeah. Cameron. Yep. Yeah. Testosterone <laughs> is a toxin that you have to work out of your system. Yep. So clearly, this is this is what first caught my attention because I thought. We need to get to the bottom of this. There's a uh, study that found that about 46% of American men, so almost half of American men, agree with the statement, these days, society seems to punish men just for acting like men. Yep. So whether you agree or not, that's a lot of people who are starting to think men are getting a bad deal. And so this was the first reason I, I decided to take this the subject, because I thought, you know... Uh, I write books on apologetics. So I, I write books on how do we analyze, how do we critique the secular world? And so I kind of wanted to see why is it that the secular world gets masculinity so wrong? You know, that was my first goal. Um, so, and, and so I spent a lot of time, as you note, in the book, uh, sort of historically going through how the script for masculinity got secularized you know, it, through several stages, how we got and t- how we got to Andrew Tate, <laughs> you know. <laughs> The masculinity stereotype of fast cars, fast money, fast women. I kind of wanted to show where that came from. Uh, so that was the first reason. But there was a second reason, um, and and it actually actually was the final decision making uh, factor. And that was when I started reading soci- sociological studies on Christian men. Hmm. And you know, obviously, in the, the the secular narrative is that Christian men are Exhibit A of toxic masculinity, right? That they are the, any sort of male headship in the home turns men into overbearing, tyrannical, uh, coercive patriarchs. And so, let me give you just one quote on that. So it was easy to find them on, with a quick (laughs) Google search. Yes, it is. (laughs) But here, so I'll give you just one. Um, This was the co-founder of the Church Two movement, which came Mm -hmm. after the Me Too movement. And she said, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. Yeah. So the thing is that social scientists were reading these accusations, psychologists, sociologists, and saying, where's your evidence? You know, you're making these charges, but where's your data? And so they went out and did the studies. And so in my book, I quote roughly a dozen different studies. And what they found was the exact opposite of the media narrative. They found that, in fact, evangelical men test out at the top of the heap. They test out as the most loving husbands and fathers. Their wives report the highest level of happiness with their husbands' expressions of love and affection. Evangelical fathers spend the most time with their children, 3.5 hours more than secular men per week, uh, both in shared activities like uh, sports or church youth group. And in terms of discipline, like uh, setting limits on screen time or enforcing bedtime. And they, evangelical couples actually divorce at the lowest rate of any major group in America, 35% lower than secular men. And then the real surprise, they have the lowest rates of domestic abuse and violence of any group in America. And I went, when I read that, I thought, how come nobody knows this? You know, yeah. I, had, I had to go date. Looking for it in the academic literature. You know, if, if you read my footnotes, you see lots of journal articles. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought we need to get this out we, for two reasons. One is to encourage Christian men 
Yeah. Right. Because Christian men share in the feeling of demoralization. When I told my class at Houston Christian University that I was writing a book on masculinity, one of my male students shot back, what masculinity has yeah. been beaten out of us? <laughs> okay. So Christian men are feeling this too. <laughs> yeah. But secondly, I mean, obviously for apologetics purposes, we need to be able to get this out into the public and say, you know, the media narrative has it wrong. Yeah. And this is not a pep talk from some religious leader. You know, this is solid uh, empirical research from the social sciences. This is evidence-based findings showing that Christianity does have the power to reconcile the sexes, as I put it in my subtitle. Yeah. So that's really, no, I mean, that, that was really interesting. It's one of the big um, kind of, uh, what you call it, the shoe drops or, or mic of, of it is, is the, the, well, the bo- first bombs that is uh, thrown into the mix when you first open the book, because like you said, it is, you know, exhibit A and it is, is that, you know, Christian men, you know, evangelical men, but white evangelical men are the problem. And the further we can get away from that, either into some kind of new vision of Christianity that's rewritten or secularizing, uh, the better off we are. And so, well, that's not what the data shows. Now we'll get back to that. We'll go. Uh, well, Can I interrupt you for just a minute though? You use the word white. So I want to say the studies were also done on minorities. Yeah. And they also found that evangelical men who, who attend church regularly uh, do better in their relationships. Uh, by the way, married or cohabiting, they studied both. And oh, um, the, the, the whole book on it by Bad Wilcox, and I forget who his co-authors are, but Bad Wilcox is a sociologist at the University of Virginia. He was one of my main sources. And he has a book on minorities and um, and not just evangelical Protestants. Most of, because we're in America, most of the research is on Protestants, but sure. I include some research on evangelical Catholics too. So just just to show it's a little bit broader right. than you know than just sort of white white Protestants. Right. So that's, that's that's no excellent point, excellent clarification for our listeners. I, I mentioned that because typically the accusation is against that's right. okay. white evangelical right. men, but you're right. Just for clarification, yeah, your research like no, it doesn't matter. You know, every you know if if they're evangelical men, specifically those who attend church more than three times a month is how you put it. But we'll get we'll get to that uh, a little bit later. I want to you know one of the big aspects of your book for people who haven't read your book is you know tracing the history of like how we got here. It's like, okay, if men have a reputation for being toxic, you know, and uh, then how did that happen? You know, why did uh, why did we get there? Particularly because you, you point out, you know, for most of Western kind of history, the reputation was, you know, unfairly, but still it was flipped. Where it's like, oh, men have the reputation for being the more moral sex. Now, again, we would say that's a problem also is that, you know, that uh, men are intrinsically less sinful somehow. But it is an interesting historical question. Wait, how did this flip so much that uh, in, you know, pre, you know, in, in the society that was even more patriarchal than it is now, you know, men were considered, you know, the uh, morally superior. And now both men and women see women as the more um, morally superior sex. And so, you know, you, you, you trace this to the industrial revolution. And so I was wondering if you like could give a, a, a brief kind of pitch of like what you found was um, the reason for that shift happening or the inflection point of that. Yeah, because a lot of people do think, you know, maybe uh, the, the very concept of toxic masculinity came out of the 1960s, second wave feminism. No, 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 it's much further back. You have to go back to the Industrial Revolution because prior to that, 
um, men worked all day with their wives and children on the family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so the cultural expectation on men focused much more on their caretaking role, you know, on their responsibility for the common good of the family. Authority itself was defined as who has responsibility for the common good, right? Yeah. I look for, I look out for what's good for me. You look out for what's good for you. But you know what? What about the common good of the marriage, the family, the church, civil society? It, it, that's what authority was for. Mm-hmm. In fact, the favorite word of that day was disinterested. The person mm-hmm. in authority was not supposed to be looking out for his own interest. He was supposed to be looking out for the good of the whole. Right. Uh, in fact, this was it's funny, funny and interesting historical facts. Uh, this is one of my favorite. Uh, most of the literature on child rearing back yeah. then, which would be sermons, advice manuals, and so on, was addressed to fathers. If you go to a typical bookstore today, they're all written to mothers. Yeah, most of them, most of them. Um, but virtually all uh, the literature was addressed to fathers because, it, first of all, they did spend just as much time with their children as mothers did. And then they were considered, you know, the primary responsibility, especially for the intellectual and spiritual development of their mm-hmm. children. So the question is, how did we lose all this? Well, the Industrial Revolution took work out of the home. That's the main thing it did. But what that meant was men had to follow their work out of the home into factories and offices. And for the first time, men were not working with their family members, people they loved and had a moral bond with. Instead, they were working as individuals in competition with other men. Hmm. And that's when you start to see the language change. You start to see people complain, protest. They didn't like it. They were protesting that men were losing the caretaking ethos of the colonial era, that they were becoming individualistic, self-centered, egocentric, self-interested, mm-hmm. um, look out for number one, mm-hmm. greedy and acquisitive, I'm using the language of the day. Sure. And, and even uh, making their career an idol. You saw mm-hmm. that quite a bit. You know, as men began to be less... Um, as they began to lose their commitment to Christian faith, they also began turning their career into an idol. And so that's another angle that was happening. The, in a sense, the uh, Industrial Revolution provided the material conditions for secularization. Mm. So as as the Industrial Revolution led to a very large split between private and public, right? There's sure. a, a large public sphere developed, developed of, of factories, industries, financial institutions, uh, in universities, the state, yeah. and so on, people began to argue that these large public institutions should operate by scientific mm. principles, yeah. by which they meant value-free. Mm. In other words, don't bring your private values into the public realm, which is what we still hear today. So what happened is men were the ones who were getting that secular education, working in that secular environment, and so they also began to secularize in their thinking earlier than women did. And you see that, too, in the language of the day, complaining that men were not attending church as often, Mm -hmm. they were not governing their behavior by biblical ethic. In fact, the 19th century is often known as a century when there was a huge increase in crime, gambling, drinking, prostitution, sort of the male, traditionally male vices mm-hmm. all arose in the 19th century. And that was largely the result of secularization. So all that to say, the, the language of the day uh, was almost as harsh in its criticisms of men as today. Let me give you just one quote. Mm-hmm. So because, because of the increase in, in crime and prostitution and so on, the 19th century also became the century of reform movements. Yeah. And they were largely driven by women. Yeah. And so 
as one, one historian puts it this way, these reform movements were implicit condemnations of males. There was little doubt as to the sex of yeah. the tavern keeper, the slave master, the drunkard, and the seducer. Yeah. So the, the language of the day became very hostile, very negative, and almost everything that you see today. Right. <laughs> they didn't use the word toxic. That was the only difference. But it was a lot of the uh, language, the rhetoric was extremely negative. And so if you want to find out where it started, you know, if you want to stand against a social trend, you have to ask, where did it start? Right. How did it develop? So it started back in the 19th century. And so that, that's where we have to go back if we want to try to have co concrete solutions today. Sure. No, so, so I think it's really interesting. I mean, again, one of the things there's a lot, I mean, again, there's a lot of things that are in the book. You should really, people should really read the book. There's a lot in there. It's really interesting. One of the things I found really interesting as a, somebody who watches a lot of movies is that, um, you know, is that a huge number as, you know, more women are getting to direct and write movies, you know, a lot of them are becoming, you know, again, most the, the portrayals of men versus women in those movies are really fascinating because in movies about men written by men, typically the way they portray women is that women get the smaller roles. They aren't to have as many roles, but the, within that women are tend to be portrayed generally positively. You know, they're the love interest. They're the wise mother. They're the woman who kind of like, you know, she doesn't get a lot of lines, but she's, you know, gives the words of wisdom to, you know, to, to, uh, to get the guy on the right track, so to speak, you know, think like pepper pots and iron man or whatever, you know, is that's sort of the classic. But in, in, movies that are directed and written by women. I mean, you just think like the new Barbie film, you know, or things done by Greta Gerwig. It's, it's still, men still have the most lines, you know, really like that. Like there's so many men in those movies, but it tends to be about how most of women's problems are caused by men and men need to reform and change. And what's fascinating is I was reading your book is like, oh, the explosion of novels in the 19th century, which were predominantly written by women, it was the exact same thing. And and so the only difference seems to be that um, now in back then, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you know, about this analysis and you can add your own to this. This is just something that was really fascinating to me. The main difference seems to be that in those novels back then, you know, the happy ending if there was one is that the man comes back to the home essentially and prioritizes the home whereas this the you know the happy ending is well i mean barbie goes off on her own to do her own thing and the guy just kind of goes away to not be involved um i you know is it does my analysis seem to be correct and this is how i'm interpreting this what would you add to it yes well most people don't realize that there was a huge explosion of novel writing in the 19th century in fact a third of all novels written were by women. Yeah. And the reason we don't know that is because they were eventually suppressed. And the, the people we know, like um, uh, James Fenimore Cooper or Melville or, or even uh, Ernest Hemingway, <laughs> the ones who got uh, put on the list of classics were all men. But in mm. fact, in terms of sheer numbers, uh, yeah, there's a whole book on this. It's fascinating. It's, <laughs> um, where she's, it's, it's a woman at Duke University who's trying to kind of remind us or teach us again that actually most of the novels written, numerically speaking, yeah. a number of novels by women outnumbered the novels by men. And many of them were exactly what you said. 
many of them were expressions of the reform movement. So in other words, many of them were expressions in fiction of the fact that many of the social problems of the day were driven by male vices, you know, that traditional male vices, and that women were the ones who were trying to solve it, were trying to reform these men. And uh, the Tempest Movement, for example, gave rise to a whole host of novels of men who were alcoholics, you know, destroying their families, beating their wives, you know, driving them to destitution with drink, you know, and then finally some crisis happens and they they join the temperance movement. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And this is uh, evangelicals joined the novel craze at the time. And they wrote novels. There's a whole book on this, too, by a a British historian um, just on evangelical novels. And he's yeah, fascinating. and he says, of course, the evangelicals were kind of like the temperance ones. The men were the social problem. They were yeah. drinking. They were um, gambling. The, you know, the, they, there's, there's even one, uh, you know, the, the two I can think of offhand where um, the, the where children were killed because of their father's yes, alcoholism. Yes. You know, in one case, uh, in one case, uh, the father's at the bar. And the mother sends the young daughter to to bring him home, and she's hit by a a, a bottle thrown across the room, and she's killed. So there's always some tragic crisis, yeah. and then and then the man gets converted and becomes a Christian, yeah. <laughs> you know. And uh, actually, this is this historian is an Irish historian. He, he's not very sympathetic, and he concludes the main impact of these evangelical novels was the demonization of men. Sure. This is an exact quote. So all that to say that um, I love the way you're bringing in novels and movies and so on, because that's where a lot of this gets played out. But then there's a reaction against that. Okay, so the reaction against that is like the late 19th, early 20th century. You get male fiction writers who celebrated the opposite, right? Who, who all said to understand why they began to feel as though uh, since since the Industrial Revolution, they were not growing up on the farm. They were not mm-hmm. growing up on, out in nature. They don't not these strong, hardy farm boys anymore. Yeah. They were sitting behind a desk and growing pale and thin and 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 weak. And a new word entered the English vocabulary: over civilized. Mm. Over civilized men began to fear that men were becoming over civilized. And part of that was because of these reform movements being driven by women that was holding yeah. them down. And so they a whole uh, genre a whole, maybe not a genre, Westerns were a genre, but there were a whole movement of male authors who celebrated men who got away from civilization yeah. out into the wild. You know, there were frontiersmen, there were cowboys, yeah. there were uh, scouts, there yeah. were Indian scouts. Uh, James Fenimore Cooper was probably the best known, uh, the last of the Mohicans. Yeah. Um, but and Mel, Herman Melville says he set his stories at sea because he thought that was, in his words, the place of the utmost male license, mm-hmm. you know, where men could be totally free from any yep. sort of moral or civil, civilizational rules. Uh, he told women not to read his books, by the way. He said, don't <laughs> read them. They're not for you. <laughs> so, no, so, so, that, so there was a whole movement of male authors, too, who said, hey, to recover our true authentic manhood, we yep. need to escape from civilization, escape from women and family, yep. you know, get out there and get recover our innate toughness. You know, it's kind of the precursors to Robert Bly in our own yep. day, right? The 1990s. 
well, taking so that, that this, out to the wilderness. <laughs> Go ahead. No, so again, so this is really fascinating to me again because like this is one of those those things that I see in our own day as well. With again, like things like you know Greta Gerwig's movies and a lot of these sort of um, is that. What I found fascinating, again, like not not to be, you know, be a picking on Barbie, but it's the most famous. It's one everybody knows. And so, like, you know, I've watched a lot of nerdy, like, you know, female centric feminist movies that other people haven't seen and won't get if I make a reference to it. But um, but they they do a really interesting thing, which is that they say, basically, you have two choices as a man to be either. You know, as a way of putting it, douche Ken or doormat Ken, basically. And, you know, is that you have to be, you know submissive to whatever barbie tells you or you are a bad guy and that's sort of the the option that they give and the thing is just like the novels of the 19th century the women saying this think men will watch this and decide okay i need to be the good cat you know that's what i'm going to be but you know historically what was done is that actually it said no if i have a choice between being you know douche ken or doormat ken i'm going to be douche ken and i'm going to take on your fact that true masculinity being means being a bad person and i'm going to embrace being a bad person and so it's like you know it's like okay what they're going to do is again they're going to say okay i'm going to go you know embrace andrew tate you know i'm going to embrace that kind of thing if that's what you're saying true masculinity is that's where i'm going to go and that's where i think is fascinating is i see that happening today and of course that's a historical precedent is that that whole thing of demonizing men in that way led to men embracing that that label, but just saying, I'm going to consider all these vices to be good things. Now, I do have a question for you related to that, which is, you know, you make a remark in there that I, which is that, you know, even like starting in the civil war and and things like that. And, you know, um, most of the time when people have power, they don't want to give it up. You know, when they're, when it is most of the time, that tends to be a general rule. And yet it seems like you note this, that men gave up their status as the moral arbiters surprisingly easily. You know, as they they and and you know, I'm wondering if you have any theories as to why that is. You know, it, it, there's there's different authors that talk about this the, the alienation from Christianity and Christian virtues that happened. You know, like David Murrow, who's talking is talking about that started kind of in the 14th century, so the groundwork was already sort of being laid for it. But I don't know, like, what is your theory as to why men sort of gave that up so easily in sort of America? Yeah, that's a good question. And it takes us back to what you said earlier. So um, earlier you said, um, how did it happen that men used to be considered morally stronger? And then in the 19th century, suddenly women were considered morally superior. So let me just comment briefly on that, because, yes, all the way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, it had been thought that men were morally stronger. The reasoning was this. They thought the insight into right and wrong was a rational insight, Mm -hmm. and they thought that men were more rational, and therefore men were more virtuous. In fact, the root of the word virtue, V-I-R, is Latin for man, as Mm -hmm. in the word viral, right? manly. Okay, yeah. So virtue had overtones of manly strength and honor. Um, so that was a huge, it was a huge shift. Most people think it's forever women were considered superior. No, this was a huge shift just in the 19th century. And why did men go along with it? Um, that's, it's so interesting. One thing I wanted to, just as a background comment, um, uh, several people have wondered where I got my history because it's not what they've normally heard. Hmm. There were whole libraries of histories written by women because of the feminist movement. Hmm. There are very few in the history of men written by men. Hmm. <laughs> Two, really, two major ones, and then some minor ones like history of fatherhood and so on. Mm. 
And so I'm giving you these two men from a men's perspective. Those mm. are the books. Those are the books I read. And and here's how one male author, one historian puts it when answering just that very question that you raised. He said, why would men go along with the idea that women were superior that when women were set up as the moral guardians of society? Mm. You know, it became accepted that women would spearhead these reform movements that, right. you know, challenge male irresponsibility. Why did they go along with it? Here's how he puts it. It let men off the hook. Mm. If 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 it's up to women to tame men, to civilize men, hmm. then men can be as greedy and irresponsible and lustful as they want to be, and then leave it up to women to tame them. Hmm. And that's that's almost his exact words. I don't have it memorized. Sure. He he uses the phrase several times. It let men off the hook. Hmm. It, re- it 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 gave men a pass on moral responsibility. It reduced the moral expectations of men. Hey, they like that. <laughs> um, so. I thought that was fascinating that that male authors pick up on that, that men went along with it because what it did is it let them off the hook. Mm. Um, And the language of the day was it's up to women to tame men. It's up to women to civilize men. And by the way, it's still out there. Um, You know, the the most recent is... George Gilder. George Gilder, yes. You take him to task very, uh, very um, welcomely from my point of view. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, because he uses extreme language about, you know, the man's natural impulse is to be violent, sexually predatory, mm-hmm. irresponsible, you know, alcoholic, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then he says it's up to women to tame men. Mm-hmm. And he goes so far as to say men need to adopt the woman's morality. Civilization depends on men mm. taking the woman's morality, to which I say, no, it's not. <laughs> it, men have to follow God's morality, mm. not women's morality. What man is going to be moral if you tell him it's a woman's it's a woman's standard that he has to submit to? I can't mm. believe George Gilder thinks that this is going to fly. <laughs> you know? Yeah, happily, it's been getting a, a lot of pushback from good places. Uh, but uh, now, so this is okay. So I, again, I, I want to make uh, I, this is there's so much fascinating stuff here. I'm really interested in now. So again, one of your your main kind of theses in your book, um, obviously, is that you know, like you said, it's not innately more. Men are not innately more toxic kind of than women or more naturally evil. This is a cultural script that's gotten adopted. On the flip side, you do have a lot of references in there to the fact that historically outside of Christianity, you know, men have been extremely toxic and it's been up to Christianity to sort of civilize them. Perhaps not, you know, women to civilize them, but it's up to Christianity to civilize them. Certainly you talk about, um, you know, talk about uh, the ancient Romans and Greeks and how warlike and, you know, oppressive and abusive they were. You talk about, you know, different countries, even sort of more recently who, you know, are, you know, just have just the same real man, you know, toxic masculinity script that we hear about today. And when Christianity comes into those places, they become more civilized. And the and you know you've you've pointed out I know you've pointed this out on your on Twitter but you know that when you have more men than women in a population the population gets more violent you know and so there is a sense in which a lot of the stuff you bring in does you know and on the flip side though you know women aren't more violent until Christianity comes in they aren't you know uh, less nurturing until Christianity comes in Christianity does seem to have a civilizing effect on men that makes them 
more like the way women seem to be naturally. And so isn't there a sense in which there is evidence to show to some degree that, you know, it is true that men are more intrinsically toxic, at least in these ways than women are. And Christianity's influence sort of is a way of, you know, bringing men to virtues that women seem to have more naturally, or how would you push back on that? Yeah, it's true. I mean, I have only, I stick mostly with America, but I have a short section on international where it's really exciting and it's very encouraging to see that when Christianity goes into, say, a machismo culture, for example. And, you know, I'm I'm quoting sociologists, anthropologists, you know, who who say, well, I'll give you just the first one, because she was a Marxist, an anthropologist who was a Marxist, and who expected to find that where evangelicalism goes, it creates this, you know, top-down Uh, patriarchy that was her word you know and she found the opposite she found that uh, where christian where evangelical christianity goes uh, it it counters machismo culture which allowed men to be you know sleeping around gambling and uh, uh, spending their money on 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 male pleasures and so on and they bring their money home devoted to the family and the, fa- the whole family experiences mm-hmm. an increase in the fa- in, the, in their um uh, standard of living so th- th- I, I quote a couple of different authors on that so yeah. i think that is fun it's it's great to see that christianity has that effect and by the way one of my readers was a, a man a man who runs a development organization international development and he thought i was far too kind far too kind on men because he's out there <laughs> seeing how uh, non-Christian cultures are very, very um, oppressive to women. And, but here's how I won him over. <laughs> there are, I'll, I'll give you two sets of studies. I'll try to make this short. One of them is by an anthropologist. It was the first ever st- cross-cultural study of concepts of masculinity. Hmm. And he found that you know, they had differences in their definitions of masculinity. Some cultures are more warlike, some are more peaceful. But he found that all cultures share the conviction that a good man will perform what he calls the three Ps, mm-hmm. provide, protect, and procreate, meaning, you know, become a father, mm-hmm. build into the next generation. Um, in other words, he found that there was an intrinsic sense, inherent, universal, like I said, cross-cultural. This was a global study. Uh, that men seem to innately know that their unique masculine strengths are not given them just to get what they want and domineer over other people, you know, but provide and protect those that they love. So I thought this was fascinating because I would say men are made in God's image. Mm -hmm. You know, they do have a part of them at least that inherently recognizes this. Um, or you could maybe call it general revelation. Sure. Yeah. What we know from revelation, as opposed to as opposed to special revelation, which is, right. which is the Bible. What we can just know from nature. The the second one, which is one I put right at the beginning of the book, um, was done by a sociologist, and he again, it's global because he speaks all around the world. And so, and both neither of these guys are Christian, by the way. And he came up with a clever experiment where he mm. asked men, young men two questions. The first question is, what does it mean to be a good man? Yeah. You know, if you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man. What does that mean? And the, socio- the sociologist said all around the world, young men had no trouble answering that. They would mm. immediately, immediately say things like honor, duty, sacrifice, integrity, do the right thing. Look out for the little guy, <laughs> um, provide, protect, be responsible. And he would ask them 
Where'd you learn that? And they'd say, I don't know. It's just in the air we breathe. Yeah. Or if they were in a Western country, they would say it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. Right. And then he would ask a follow-up question. What does it mean if I say to you, man up, be a real man? Yeah. And the young men would say, oh, no, that's completely different. Mm. <laughs> that means be tough, be strong, never show weakness, suck it up, uh, win at all costs. Mm. Um, what else? Be competitive, mm. get rich, get laid. <laughs> I'm using their language. <laughs> Um, and so this is sociology concludes, you know, men seem to, again, inherently, innately know what it means to be the good man. They do aspire to be good, but they're also feeling social pressure from their culture to be the, the quote unquote real man, which are traits that we mostly would consider more toxic, especially if they get decoupled from mm-hmm. a moral ideal. It can slip into, you know, entitlement, dominance, yeah. control and so on. And so I thought this was really insightful and and gives us maybe a better way to approach these issues. Instead of accusing men of being toxic, which most men don't respond very well to, a better approach is to, can we tap into Hmm. their innate sense of what it means to be a good man Hmm. and make make an allyship with what what their internal knowledge, aspiration of being good, and and that gives us a just a much more positive way to approach these issues. Okay, so now on, on one of the biggest criticisms that I've seen of your book, and I'd be really interested in getting your 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 pushback on this, is on because you do you you basically you make the case again as Christian apologists and you know and going against the grain of the culture, you make the case that the culture gets it exactly wrong when it says that. You know, Christianity is a problem. Secularization essentially is a solution. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, particularly feminist secularization. But uh-huh. you know, and then what you're saying is actually the problem is secularization. There was a secular script that replaced the Christian script, and going back to Christianity, the Christian script of you know of of manhood is the solution. And you can see this because men who are more likely to adopt. The you know Christian script um, are less the least likely to be toxic. You gave all the stats earlier. The common criticism of that that I've seen is how do we know these people are telling the truth? Because as you lay out, you know, in your book, there is a lot of gaslighting that goes on in, toward abused women in evangelical cultures and church cultures about like, hey, you know, I'm being abused, but I tell people that you know, I'm being abused and they say, oh, you're not being abused or it's partly your fault and whatever. And a lot of, you know, you know, sort of ex-evangelicals, particularly women talk about their experiences of I, you know, I was in this culture and I was I was, you know, told that I was happy and I was sort of convinced I was. And finally, you know, I got out again. I don't mean to be picking on Barbie, but again, in that movie, (laughs) you have, you know, the 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 Barbies who then you know, go and see the brainwashed Barbies in in Kendom. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, they think they're happy, but they're actually not. And if we just feed them enough, you know, kind of this sort of uh, uh, feminist lines, they'll realize that they're unhappy and they'll get out of that. And so this is always the question that kind of where it comes to self-reporting, you know, is is how do we know that when these people say that, you know, these women say they're the most happy and when they say that they're least likely to uh, say that you know their husband's abusing them and stuff like that. How do we know that that's actually true? Is there indications within the data of why we should trust that um, interpretation of it? 
Well, let me say, first of all, it's not just evangelicals. <laughs> all women, all abused women have a problem with this. Mm-hmm. My, my my own sister worked for many years in a, um, a, a shelter for abused women. Mm-hmm. And she said, it's, it's a common problem. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. It's, she said, one of the hardest things I face is trying to persuade women that what they're experiencing qualifies as abuse. Mm-hmm. So it's not an evangelical issue. Um, it's universal. Uh, but uh, secondly, you know, this might be the place to say that there is abuse in Christian homes. Yes. But um, but here's the deal. So, you know, it started with it started with people pushing back and saying, well, wait a minute. Don't Christian couples uh, divorce at the same rate as the right. rest of the culture? Uh, in my research, in my research, I found this one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. Uh, and so the researchers went back to the data and they made that crucial distinction between men who do attend church regularly and you know, very authentic in their commitment versus nominal Christians. Mm-hmm. And so my students don't know what nominal means, so I have to explain. You know, N-O-M is Latin for name, so it means in name only. So what this uh, means uh, in, in, um, in a survey like this, they might check, say, the Baptist box, for mm-hmm. example, but they rarely go to church if at all. It's a cultural Christianity, it's mm-hmm. family background. And these men test out shockingly different. Mm-hmm. They fit all the toxic stereotypes. You know, their wives report the lowest level of happiness. And by the way, they have no problem admitting that they're not happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they have the lowest level of happiness. Uh, they, they, these men re- spend the least amount of time with their children. These couples have the highest rate of divorce, higher than secular men, 20% higher than secular men. And the real shocker is that they have the highest rate of domestic abuse and violence, mm. higher than secular men. Yeah. And so when we talk about evangelicals, if you just do an overarching study, you're going to get misleading statistics, right. right? You're going to get men who are better than secular men and men who are worse than secular men. And so this dividing out these two groups proved to be extremely important for understanding what's really going on. And maybe, you know, it's good for the church, too. On the one hand, I think they need to be more supportive of the men who are doing a good job, mm-hmm. right? One of my graduate students is the head of a women's ministry mm-hmm. in a large Baptist church here in Houston. And she said, on Mother's Day, we hand out roses and tell mothers they're wonderful. Mm-hmm. On Father's Day, we scold the men and tell them mm-hmm. to do better. And, and so I think, you know, I, I tried very hard to avoid a scolding tone. Yeah, and you did. I think you were, you, were, you were excellent about that. I was very appreciative about that. And I think churches need to do that. You know, they they need to start supporting the men because men are demoralized and defeated and, you know, feel beaten down as well. Christian men. Um, But on the other hand, it does suggest maybe we need to really start thinking how to have a ministry to these men who are sort of at the fringes, who are claiming an evangelical evangelical identity, but who are taking words like headship and submission and importing meaning from the secular script, like dominance and control and I uh, what? Stu- I stumbled uh, just just today. I stumbled on some Twitter accounts called "Biblical Manhood," saying things like, "Women are not made in the image of God." Oh dear Women gosh! Are- yes, literally. Um, my husband decided it was a fake account. He he couldn't believe anyone would really say this. <laughs> so we'll see. You know, women women are not made in the image of God. Women are property. Women are just for sex and Jeez. kids. I mean, it was very extreme. Yeah. Um, anyway, yes. so I would say I'm familiar it, with the Theo Bros. Yes. So it's, <laughs> this was this was even worse, I think. Okay. At any rate, I mean, they're out there. Is my point. Yes. And yeah. 
so I think the church and claiming again, claiming this is biblical manhood. So I think the church needs to really think through how do we reach out to these men and and disciple them better? Yeah, I think one thing that was really eye opening reading your book was the that I think I mean again this is just my reading and what I got out of it was the the fact that you know there's two types of marital problems you know there's you know a healthy marital problems and you know abusive marital problems and oftentimes you know the advice that pastors are giving is about healthy marital problems in abusive situations because you said look being more loving being more understanding is actually good advice in a healthy relationship because it's like yeah if you're having conflicts learning to be more you know more christ like as the you know people talk about being to be you know empathetic and loving so is good advice if you're in a basically healthy relationship and it would make sense if again the people who attend church more are the more healthy kind of men that pastors are you know basing their experience about what is the best um, best way to go about things on the men they know best. Well, I know what would work with the men I know best, you know, in a situation. But you're right. It's two types of men you're talking about. You're talking about, I mean, generally speaking, obviously, there's exceptions to every role. Is it, but generally speaking, the men most likely to be abusive are the ones that the pastors know the least well. And so that causes a special challenge of, OK, how do we disciple the people who are um, more likely to be toxic when they don't have as close relationships with the church and the pastor. I do, I have this, this is kind of a question sort of, again, I, you know, let me know, you know, don't feel you have to be okay for the camera. Let me know if you have to go, but like, you know, I just, <laughs> but like, I'm really excited by, by this topic and I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you about it, but it's like, you know, um, there's a lot of literature right now on the, like, Generally speaking, again, if Christianity is the antidote to toxic masculinity, then one of the biggest problems is the fact that men don't go to church. And when they do go to church, they're not enthusiastic about it. You know, they, they, you know, I'm again, I go to church and, and I look at the men versus women in the pews. And typically, again, it's like 70, 30 women to men and even places where it's where it's more even, you know, you can see the level of enthusiasm from the women versus the level of enthusiasm from the men. It's like satirical, almost the the the, the gender gap of that. And you you talk about that very honestly in the in the book. And there's been a lot of people, you know, like David Murrow and Leon Podols and 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 such who've been trying to unpack why this is, and even more importantly than why it is, like what do we do about it? You know, um, and and I'm and I'm wondering, like, what do you see as ways forward for people who want to speak to bringing men into church and generating the level of enthusiasm that they can be discipled? What do you think that that looks like? Yeah, that you 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 went through several points. I I do want to respond to what you said at the beginning, um, because nominal men are actually more abusive even than secular men. I did have to have two chapters on yeah. abuse in the book. Um, and, and and you're absolutely right. Uh, that, that was a good insight on your part, I think, by the way. The, the fact that the reason that so many uh, pastors are ineffective in counseling truly abusive couples is that they don't know that many. <laughs> and so uh, the good news is if anyone is in an abusive uh, environment, there are more and more books coming out by Christians. I wrote this book at the right time because everything I've read before was 
uh, tended to make the wife responsible, right? Yeah. Oh, well, if you would just love more, forgive yeah. more, uh, make his favorite meals, have more sex, uh, lose weight and look better. You know, if you would just, oh, and of course, if you would only submit more, right. I should have said that first. <laughs> um, then, then, you know, you can change your husband and he will stop being abusive. And fortunately, there are more and more therapists and theologians out there saying, actually, that doesn't that doesn't work. Right, yeah. And we should have known that because, you know, that doesn't work in any situation with a bully, right? yeah. the playground bully or international affairs, the belligerent nation. If you acquiesce and placate, you know, you think it worse. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's it's the same with marriage. So, so fortunately, there are much better resources out there on that subject. And what to do about men? That's a really good question because, by the way, the average now, the average congregation is 60-40. It's uh, 60% female, 40% male. And and you mentioned David Murrow, who wrote the book, Why Men Hate Going to Church. And he has a website called Church for Men. And he does have uh, suggestions. They tend to be fairly simple things. You know, things that you can do that uh, don't require a lot of work, like don't have pastel decor, you know, <laughs> have rocks and exposed wood kind of things. You know? um, or, and don't have a Kleenex box at the end of each pew. And, and don't have those horrible flannel banners. You know? <laughs> Men don't like those. Um, I don't either. But anyway, and, and even the music. Can we think of music that's a little more rousing and, mm-hmm. you know, has more of a, uh, an objective tone? I, I grew up Lutheran, so our hymns were always very objective. They were, you know, praising God for his attributes, hmm. whereas m- modern praise courses is my feelings. You know, I yeah. feel this way. I feel that way. I love hmm. you, God. I, so I, I really am very aware of that distinction. And men tend to be more drawn to those more objective hymns. Um, and of course, even the, the making them low enough <laughs> so that men can sing them more easily. <laughs> yeah. So David Morrow, Church Church for Men, has a lot of that. And he has some stories of people who've tried mm-hmm. them. And 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 it's worked. He has one story. My favorite one was um, it was a female pastor. Yeah. Because <laughs> he was speaking one time and he said, how many of you have tried these and, and s- tried some of these uh, mm-hmm. strategies and see them work? And he said, a hand went up and it had red nail polish on it. <laughs> I thought, what? <laughs> Did you understand the question? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it was a, a female pastor who, who was using his his strategies. So I think that's encouraging that sometimes sure. it doesn't take super difficult, you know, throwing your whole church upside down. Mm-hmm. It can be right. fairly simple external things that can can work. And frankly, I've talked to a lot of women who agree who they would like it better, too. I told the story of my book, Total Truth, which. Oh, yes. Did you remember? Where is it? <laughs> it's a total Truth. You know, when that yeah. when that was first. When they, it was, they sent it out to the design company, and of course, you know, the design company doesn't yeah. read the book. They just get a short description. They see a oh, woman's book, and so they designed a cover with a teacup on a doily, <laughs> and and the words, the the title was in baby blue with sort of curly cues mm-hmm. on the font. <laughs> Way to send it back and say this is not a woman's book, <laughs> but of, but of course when I tell that story, women say, "Well, I wouldn't buy that book either." Yeah. You know, so, so even women, on you know, the, the assumption is that because because the congregation is more women, because more women than men go to Christian bookstores, more women than men are in Sunday school and small groups, you know, more women than men listen to Christian music. It is kind of understandable that marketers and preachers yeah. and 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 book producers 
uh, all kind of start to gear towards what they what they think yeah. are women's tastes. So it is natural, but I do think it's something we need to stand against and, think, and start respecting men enough to say, let, let's see what what will attract them. Yeah, I think I mean, I think you make an, an excellent point. Again, there's the, um, uh, you know, people it often gets, again, turned into a sort of a right left thing because, <laughs> again, because, um, you know, what a lot of egalitarians, their concern is how do we get more women in the pulpits, you know, and the concern of a lot of the, you know, uh, Christian, Christian manosphere, let's say, is how do we get more men in the pews? And yeah. of course, again, regardless of what you think about the theology of it, those shouldn't be contradictory. You know, it's like, you know, even egalitarians should be concerned of, yeah, we should probably have more men in the pews, you know, right. even if we want to have more women in the pulpits. And so seeing men as a group that's, you know, unchurched or that's, um, that should be, maybe even for if for no other reason that every single Christian girl I know is like, I where are the Christian men in the other pews that I can possibly date? You know, um, so that's that's I think that's that's good. Yeah, no. So David Murrow and Leon Portals have done some interesting work on that. So people check that out and uh, use a Church for Men that website checking out. Um, so again, a couple more questions. Uh, one is, and this is kind of interesting. You know, one of the things you say, which is really interesting, you make an argument that. Even in you know in relationships, perhaps that they're not abusive, but where the relationship breaks down, you know, one of the things that sort of you know the the the, the manosphere and the Christian manosphere, the Christian right, kind of is is uh, you know there's there's always this fight basically in our culture who's to blame for the high divorce rates and for marriages that are that are falling apart, and the and you know often the sort of women and it will uh, women will tend to blame men and men will tend to blame women on this and of course the the men will you know will point to the you know divorce rates primarily being you know driven by women something like 70 80% and of course women will you know put back and say yeah yes but it's because you're making us miserable and of course you know your your book you lay out you know study from Gottman Institute and some other things they're saying like Basically, yes, the pro the women are right. The problem is that, you know, uh, it what takes it takes to make a relationship work is that you need to love and respect your partner and invest in making sure that, you know, your partner feels loved and respected. And predominantly, women and wives are putting that work in, and men are not because women are sort of socialized to both believe that's a responsibility that they have and have the social skills to be able to do that, whereas men are not. And that's sort of a, 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 a large, um, an argument he makes over the, at the latter, latter end of the book. Um, and so men need to step up and you know, take on that responsibility of actually, you know, uh, being better about that. Now, one of the things, would that be a correct kind of summation of sort of what you're saying? Yes. And what I find interesting, though, is I'm quoting secular people on this. Yeah. I want to make sure people realize yeah. um, one of them, um, it's just in the end notes, so you may not remember this one, but there's a book called... Um, but it's called something like how to improve your marriage without without talking. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, it's about understanding the differences between men and women so sure. that they can accommodate each other without having to discuss every little thing. Right. But anyway, one of the quotes they have there is, um, yes, women are more likely to leave the marriage. Eighty percent. It is 80 percent. now, okay. And among college educated women, it's 90 yeah. percent who file for divorce. But if you talk to the women, he, this is a quote from their book. Women will say the man left the, emo the relationship emotionally long mm. before she left physically. 
Yeah. So that's how women see it. Yeah. And then the others that I quote, like like Gottman, Gottman's not a Christian. He has a Jewish background. He's not a Christian. And, and he's the one who says 86% of American men do not respect their wives, or in his word, in, accept influence from their wives. In other words, 86% of men do not listen to their wives, um, take their wives' concerns into account when they're making decisions, do not res- respect their opinion, do not seek out you know, their thoughts. This is 86, and this is, again, a non-Christian guy, 86% of men do not. And then he says, this is not to blame or shame men. Um, it's, it, it's you know, like you said, it's that they have not been socialized to value their relationship in the way that women are socialized to. The other one, my, my other favorite um, psychotherapist is Terry Real. Mm-hmm. Again, not a Christian. Um, and he specializes in marriages that are just on the verge of divorce. Sure. Uh, and he's done so well that he's been on 2020 and Oprah and all kinds of programs because like, how do you do this? Um, but he won't even take you unless you've already been through three or four therapists, sure. right? <laughs> So, so these are very, very troubled marriages. And you know what he says? It's usually the man who has to change. It's mm. usually the man. Not always, but sure. the majority of the time, it's the man who's not investing in the relationship. It's the man who's not respecting his wife. Mm. It's the man who's not listening. Um, and he says, I almost always, I almost always take the woman's side. He's a it's a it's a cardinal law in psychotherapy that you do not take sides. Mm. He says. I break that rule. <laughs> I take sides. He says, I take the side of the underdog, sure. you know, the one who's being overpowered in the marriage, which is usually the wife. Hmm. Not always, but usually. Um, and so he says, I take the side of the underdog. I get the underdog to stand up. You know, hmm. I encourage them. I strengthen them to stand up and speak for themselves. And I encourage the overbearing partner to calm down, <laughs> you hmm. know, step down a bit and, and learn a little humility by listening to the other side. So and he's been enormously successful mm. with men. People say, how do you do that? <laughs> because in in therapy, if there's somebody who walks out, it's usually the man, right? Mm. The man says, hey, you know, I'm not doing this work, bye. Mm. And they work with him. And he says, it's because I'm honest with them. I tell them, you know, let, let me give you the bad news. <laughs> you're <Yeah>. wrong. <laughs> he literally says that. <laughs> what you're doing is wrong. Would you like me to tell you what's wrong? You want to fix your marriage or not? If you do, you know, I'll tell you what's wrong. And they usually say, well, yeah, okay. You know, stick it to sure. me straight. Sure. They respect that. They respect yeah, no, that's, no, that's, uh, But so my main point is I'm, I'm quoting secular sure. therapists and psychologists on all of these issues, which I think is interesting. Um, you know, in case, in case somebody thinks this is a Christian perspective, no, no, it's sure. It's, yeah, no. So, well, <laughs> well, I think it's, again, this may be outside again, like I, Again, like it's this is interesting because I hear these conversations back and forth. Again, I'm I'm part of this sort of this whole conversation about um, you know male female stuff online and 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 in the Christian space, but also in the secular space. And this may be you know again like th- this is not a a a if you don't like have an off the top answer to this question, that's fine. But one of the that that's no no problem at all. But one of the things that is pointed out oftentimes sort of it when when the question thing is brought up well it's it's usually the guy's fault essentially you know in in these in these things is when a marriage falls apart one of the things that's often brought up is you know the the statistics for lesbian divorce you know if if you 
if it was the reason that these marriages are mostly breaking down is because women are socialized better to invest in and care about the real and, and to fix problems in relationship and men are not, you would think that lesbians would have the lowest divorce rate. And, and in <laughs> fact, the exact opposite is true. They have the highest divorce rate. And, and so for, 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 you know, many people kind of, you know, the sort of men on the right, cause so like, okay, well, it seems then maybe that there's the problem in the heterosexual relationships is not mostly exclusively the male uh, male province. I don't know. Again, if would you is would you have an off the cuff kind of response to that? Yeah, sure. Oh, oh, sure. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So when you have a same sex couple, it tends to exaggerate whatever their characteristics are of that sure. sex. So yeah. two men together tend to exaggerate male the male characteristics because yeah. there's nothing to 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 counterbalance it, sure. and so that's why. The majority of of male homosexual relationships are not monogamous. Right. You know, they're yeah. open. Yeah. <laughs> they 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 just agree that they it's okay to have relationships on yeah. the side. Um, when, the, when the guy, example, when the husband in that relationship says it didn't mean anything, the other person says, "Okay, I'll accept that. It didn't mean anything for me either." Yeah. Yeah, wasn't a, 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 a journalist named Michael Savage who said, "Well, we're mag- we're monogamous, monogamous." <laughs> he, he became famous for saying yeah. that. In other words, yeah, we well, you know we'll have a, a main guy, but it's okay to have several on the side. Sure. Two women. <laughs> Two women will exaggerate that intense emotional attachment, that intense. Uh, you know, wanting everything out of the relationship, <laughs> almost like, you know, sure. um, the, the expectations are so intense. Um, and you have to remember this, too. The mating and dating pool is smaller. Sure, Heterosexuals yeah. have a much wider pool. If I lose this woman, I don't have that many other options. Yeah. And so I become intensely jealous, mm. you know, intense, intensely possessive. I know that if I lose this one, there's not many other options. Um, so ironically, it's one of those cases where over-expectation can then lead to disillusionment. Hmm. If you expect too much, you get hurt more. And hmm. you say, okay, I'm out. Sure. You know, it's, it's actually, I think, one of the reasons that women uh, file for divorce more, even in, in heterosexual relationships. The woman wants more. Hmm. And so she's more easily disappointed. Hmm. She's more easily hurt and says, well, this isn't what I signed up for. Whereas the man's like, I didn't really want that much anyway. I don't care about intimacy. (laughs) You know, know, men, I mean, there's lots of ways to go with this. Of course, of course. Yeah. There's the the Myers-Briggs personality types. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Men are more likely to be T in the Myers-Briggs, which means more more objective, less emotional. Like, okay, you know. Uh, if less 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 geared towards sort of personal intimacy, whereas women, uh, six, it's sixty five percent roughly according sure. to. Oh, so sure, it's, yeah, it's yeah. a majority. It's a majority. It's not all men by any means, but it's a majority. And it's that's like height. Scary. It's like height. It's <laughs> like you know. It's like you know. Eh, mostly, but also overlap. Mostly overlapped. Exactly. So, but it is where the stereotypes come from. Whereas right. women are most sixty five percent roughly of women are F, and the F is the more emotional, more relational, more sensitive. Mm. Um, and again, that's that's a majority, but not all. Um, and so where, that's where these stereotypes come from. It is true that it's more likely, well, by the way, I thought it was interesting that um, 65% of men are T in the Myers-Briggs, and John Gottman found that 65% of men don't pay attention to their wives. Uh, Well, maybe there's a connection there. They're T's. (laughs) (laughs) 
they're not geared toward the emotional state of their wives or yeah. children. Uh, so maybe there's a connection. And then women are more F, which means they are more geared towards wanting intimacy, mm-hmm. connection, um, emotional sensitivity, so, and more, and they are more easily hurt. So, so, so if, if I can, let me know if this sounds, you know, reasonable to say from like an evangelical pers- sort of um, imagination, let's say the way that we describe it is that, you know, that there are two separate problems going on, you know, in, in, in a heterosexual relationship versus a lesbian relationship to use this example is that in a heterosexual relationship, the most common problem is that men are not fulfilling their responsibility as men to be, um, you know, to, to be good husbands, you know, in the relationship. And for lesbians, it's, there is no husband to be a good husband in the relationship. (laughs) That's also necessary. That is part of God's design. That would sort of be in the evangelical imagination, how they would kind of uh, accommodate both of those, uh, those, um, those data points. Yeah, um, well, it is true. I mean, one of the researchers I read said, you know, men have been sort of socialized that they're they are going to get their main sense of masculinity, men, you know, manly fulfillment from their career. Mm. And so men literally don't realize how much they actually just derive their sense sure. of fulfillment from their family. I, I quoted this guy, this particular researcher in the chapter on fatherhood, because um, I, I quoted men who found out becoming a father was so fulfilling. And they felt like, how come nobody told me? Sure, sure. No, nobody told me how much joy I would get out of having children. And and I'm not averse to uh, appealing to men's self-interest. <laughs> <laughs> so I have um, I have studies showing yeah. how uh, how much men benefit from becoming fathers. Uh, some psychologists call it the dad brain. There's yeah. a nest of neurons that that don't get activated unless a man becomes a father. So he literally grows his brain when he yep. becomes a father. He also, people didn't used to know this, they knew that mothers have an increase in oxytocin mm-hmm. when they become mothers, you know, which is the bonding hormone, yeah. which gives her a little biochemical boost yep. in attaching to her baby, and babies need that. Yep. They're so helpless. We didn't realize that fathers also experience an increase in oxytocin mm-hmm especially when they're ha- it's stimulated by touch. So they have to mm. be actually holding and playing with and cuddling their child. And, and this was the most recent one. So this was the mm. most surprising. An anthropologist, it's, it's in a book called The Life of Dad. Mm. An anthropologist discovered that the man's oxytocin is actually increasing all nine months of his wife's pregnancy. Mm. Apparently, nobody had ever thought to test a man's blood <laughs> when, his wife, when his wife was pregnant. But when they did, they found out that you know, a man is being biochemically primed to be an involved father all mm. through his wife's pregnancy. And I thought, this is great. You know, God has really designed the man f- mm. for fatherhood. You know, people who think, well, mothers are just uh, uh, Margaret Mead, the great anthropologist, made this sort of a common, uh, common um, understanding that mm. motherhood mm. is natural. For women, but fatherhood is a social construction. No, it's just Mm. as much built in the man's biochemistry as it is in the mother's biochemistry. I think that really underscores that God gave both men and women the cultural mandate, right? In in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply is given to both men and women. You know, subdue the earth is given to both men and women. 
Um, and most of the, of course, most of the moral prescriptions in the, in the Bible are given to both men and women yeah. as well. The gifts of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit. Um, there's not a lot of differentiation in scripture between men and women, but, but I I like to, I like to help people realize that contrary to the sort of, um, macho script uh, of today, men are actually all the way down to the biochemistry are, are equipped to be good fathers. That's awesome. So, okay. So I have just two more questions. If you want to do just one more, I can cut out one of them, but, uh, Let's see. Okay, <laughs> Go cool. ahead. Okay, cool. So, so one of the things again, I'm I I t- I try to like to ask questions that some people are going to ask, but also that other people, you know, don't. I'm not hearing other people ask as much. But mm-hmm. one of the things that again I find sort of the Christian manosphere is one of their frustrations with evangelical culture um, is something you kind of point out as a positive thing in your book because you talk about like how is um, you know male headship. Uh, interpreted by most uh, evangelical, uh, you know, marriages. And what you find is that, you know, uh, for the majority, you know, the idea of male headship, first of all, it, it you know, um, it's uh, is implied more responsibility than authority. Responsibility is emphasized over authority. Where it's like, it's my job to take care of my family and provide and, and be, you know, good, you know, husband and father and, and, and responsible for their spiritual well-being and such like that. Um, and authority, even when you say, okay, there's a tiebreaker element, you know, authority is never really exercised. Uh, even though it's like, I can't really you know, talk about couples and saying, I can't remember the last time that was ever really used that tiebreaker authority. And one of the frustrations that I, I see a lot of, um, sort of ex-evangelical men who ex-evangelate to the right, <laughs> let's say, is that, that sort of servant headship in in uh, in in evangelical Christianity translates to servant servantship. <laughs> uh, that it's all responsibility, no authority. It's extra response, like at least egalitarian marriages. They kind of say, "Don't give you extra responsibility without giving you extra authority." You know, in in evangelical situations, they find you're given extra responsibility but aren't given extra authority along with it. And yet, you talk about in a sense, you know, one of the positive things is that they are focusing on the responsibility aspect, which means they're less likely to be draconian and abusive with authority. And so I was wondering, again, again, how would you give people a vision of, you know, from what you've seen and all just your own observations, your own experiences, what or not, for how, um, how, servant headship should be imagined by these men who are kind of like, it seems like it's a trick to give us a raw deal. You know, um, you know, Alexander Hamilton said, you know, uh, authority and responsibility have to be matched. You can't give you. And so how does it look to have whatever higher responsibility I have be matched with greater authority without that becoming abusive? Well, first of all, um, I have heard what you're saying. In other words, there are some people who say that servant leadership has gone to the point where it means servant, servant, servanthood. <laughs> um, it's just that I don't see it. I don't. Mm. I, I just don't see it. Um, and if I may, I'll, I'll even go back to my secular authorities. Yeah. You know, when John Gottman said sixty-five percent of American men don't respect their wives. Mm. I mean, he's he's giving us sort of a big picture he's not just and and uh terry real perhaps you know the most famous psychotherapist of our day right now by the way he wrote the first book on male depression 
Hmm. So he's an expert specifically on male psychology. And and he too says, uh, unfortunately, too many in in my experience, the men, the couples coming into my practice, it's usually the man who has to change. Hmm. Um, so I'm just I am not I'm not seeing this idea of Christian men are being turned into wimps, hmm. you know, which is kind of what I, I hear the accusation. And in the uh, social science, the surveys that were done, by the way, um, I, I wanted to clarify what the surveys were. And, and why I included them. Um, the, the surveys were done by people who are, again, looking at the secular world. What are the accusations coming in from the secular world? Mm-hmm. They were not looking at egalitarian versus <laughs> complementarian. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so what they found, well, first of all, I was, I was pretty blown away by how, uh, they, how they defined headship and submission in such loving, respectful, mm-hmm. mutual ways. I, I really didn't expect them to, to express it this way. But it's true that they did not mostly talk about final authority or breadwinner or tiebreaker. The most common phrase was spiritual leader. Hmm. And then when they were asked, well, what does that mean? They they said the normal practical things for, for starters. You know, they said, get your family to church on Sunday, hmm. get your kids to youth group, have family devotions and family prayer. But they also talked about the sort of intangibles, like feeling responsible for your children's spiritual growth feeling responsible for your wife's spiritual well-being. Mm. Um, and so most of them uh, spoke in terms of a kind of authority, but in the old-fashioned way. Remember mm. I said in the colonial era, authority meant who has responsibility for the common good. Mm. And I'm not sure if they're using that kind of language because, you know, we've lost that terminology sure. of common good. <laughs> but that seems to be what they mean. You know, it's mm. my job to make sure that the family overall is doing well. Um, and, and even sort of, uh, many of them spoke in terms of who takes the initiative. Right? Mm. If you see a problem in your family, you know, mm. uh, the, the, the house is dirty. Sure. Sure. You take the initiative, you start cleaning up and then mm. say, you know, follow me, do what I'm doing. Mm. You know, if you feel like your family needs a deeper spiritual life, you get a deeper spiritual mm. life. And then, you know, bring your family along. You know, if, if you if you feel like your kids are watching too much media, mm. you, know, you talk about the importance of having a Christian mind and how can mm. we develop a Christian mind. And maybe maybe you start having, you know, family time where you read good classical books together around the mm. family dinner table. You know, so it, it, a lot of them defined in terms of taking the initiative to fix the problem. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Mm. I thought that yes. was a good description. And, and it fits and it fits with what Genesis says when it says, you know, who leaves their family? Sure. Who, you yeah. know, who leaves their family home, their parents? You you realize that in, in most cultures, it's the woman who has to leave. Yeah. <laughs> like India, China, wherever. It's uh, in most traditional cultures, the woman leaves and joins the man's family. So I think it's very significant that Genesis says, no. No, the man mm. has to take the initiative to leave his family, what's mm. comfortable, what's natural to him, and go out and start a new family. You know, in- initiate sure, yeah. a new fam, a new family structure. Uh, so, so it's not, uh, and contrary to George Gilder, it's not the woman who's supposed to entice him and seduce him <laughs> into into staying faithful. <laughs> no, no, he's called before God to be the faithful husband and father. Very cool. That's 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 a good that's a good answer. Um. Uh, the uh, okay, the final word again. If if there's for people who are listening, you know, um, you know, you do you get again. I encourage people to read the book. You know, for you know the 
prescriptions for what one does, you know, about um, about, you know, what you can do as individuals and what we can do as a society to make uh, the to make these corrections to to, uh, you know, the the real man script or the toxic masculinity script and and such. But what would you um, if you could just kind of give an encouragement or thoughts for people who are saying, yeah, this is something I want to get on board with fixing this problem um, and uh, had were wondering what are what are ideas for solutions to that? What would you kind of um, where would you point them where? How would you encourage them? What advice would you give? The most important long term solution to toxic behavior in men is fathers getting closer to their kids, the sons in particular, right? Because if the sons are not growing up with a healthy, positive, biblical view of masculinity, they will become the next generation of toxic men. Hmm. So there's a psychiatrist who I quote and who says, we're not going to have a better class of men until we have a better class of fathers. Hmm. And so I think one of the things we should think about as a church is how can we help fathers be more involved with their sons? Hmm. And and I have a whole chapter on ways that we can kind of flex the workplace because most men say the biggest barrier still is the workplace, right? Ever since the Industrial Revolution, mm-hmm. you know, we're out of the home all day. What do we do about that? And uh, and and the pandemic actually gave had a small silver lining in that a lot of fathers did discover that they liked being home more. Once in one survey, sixty five percent of fathers said, "Hey, I." I, I got. I like this. I want. I want to go. I don't want to go back to the office full time. You know, mm-hmm. I, maybe yeah. a hybrid situation, something that allows me to work more from home. And the um, the New York Times just had an. You you live in New York. I wonder if you saw this. The New York Times maybe just two months ago or so had an article titled something like, "During the pandemic, fathers got closer to their children, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they don't want to lose that." Yeah. And I thought, yeah, the, even the New York Times says this. So I do have, you know, I'll just give you an anecdote because sometimes an anecdote crystallizes it. One of my graduate students is married to an IT professional who came home during the pandemic. Because he was home, he was able to be more involved with homeschooling. He was he decided he would be the one to make lunch every day. He could take his kids to soccer practice or choir practice. He picked up so many of the family responsibilities that his wife started a part-time business. She's an opera singer, by the way. So she started a voice studio. And, and the whole family benefited from the added income. Mm-hmm. So I interviewed her husband for the book, and he said, our family is so much more balanced now. We, I am never going back to 40 hours in a cubicle. Mm-hmm. And then he said, and, and the final kicker was, he said, the time that I used to spend commuting every morning, I now spend praying with my wife every morning. Mm-hmm. I thought, okay, that kind of crystallizes the kind of thing that we might want to try to move toward as we think, how can we raise a better generation of sons? That's the long-term solution. Well, thank you so much, uh, Nancy. This is, this has been amazing. Um, So I want to tell everybody, you know, go out, you know, agree or disagree with what is in the book or, you know, agree with some parts of the book and disagree with others. This is a book you should be reading in order. I'm just going to say this in order to be, in order to have be versed enough to talk about these issues, you know, in a intelligent way, you should read this book and, and understand the data that she's putting forth and the arguments that, um, Professor Percy is is putting forth. So it's available on Amazon Any you know, anywhere you get books that should be, gotten that that's you know uh the 
um, uh, the war on the toxic war on masculinity, how Christianity reconciles the sexes, um, is, uh, you can get that there and you should. So anything else, if you, um, uh, anywhere, anything where else, if people want to get in touch with you or have questions for you or things like that, where, uh, and to get your other books and such like that, where can they go? Yes. Well, my publisher generously redesigned my website. So it's nice and colorful. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's nice. So nancypiercy.com, P E A R C E Y.com, mm-hmm. nancypiercy.com. Come on over, browse my other books. You've mentioned Love Thy Body. Come on check out, see what that's about. And yes, you can leave comments. I read the comments. I don't have time to answer all of them, but I will read them. So nancypiercy.com, come on by and say hello. Well, thank you so much. You were so generous with your time. This was, I was looking forward to this. and I'm so excited got to do it. Um, and, uh, and thank you all of you. If you've made it to the end, you are better than other people. Uh, thank you so much <laughs> for listening. Uh, God loves you more. Uh, that's a joke by the way, but, uh, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much again, uh, Professor Percy. And, uh, thank you everyone for listening. Once again, this is the Religion Unplugged podcast for your regular religious news and culture.